views expressed on this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station, its management, or other advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody, I want to welcome you. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. OMG, I cannot believe the show that I am getting ready to do today. Are you ready for this? Vampires are us. Understanding our love affair with the immortal dark side. With my very special guest today, uh, author Margot Adler. Well, here's what I want to say. I want to say that, oh, if somebody said to you, Pat, you know what I would like you to do? I would like you to read hundreds of vampire novels, and, and then and then what I would like you to do is go out here and watch, like, all the movies, all the TV stuff, all that. I would walk away from my day job to do that. Uh, and, by the way, I probably have already done that. Eric, we are going to have some fun today. How are you today, my friend? LOL. <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm doing fine. I didn't expect you to come on and talk about uh, vampires, so this is going to be fun. Don't you think it's going to be a real hoot? I think no, it's going to be a fun hour, question. absolutely. Okay, let's let you and I have a little moment of, of true disclosure. My guests can hear everything we're saying, right? True enough. How about you? Me? What, do you have a love affair with the immortal dark side? I, I don't know about love affair, but uh, I find it entertaining to, <laughs> to you know, see the fictionalized versions of that, for sure. Oh, my gosh. I have a love affair. I, I have to admit it. I probably am going to have to go to therapy or a 12-step group about this. <laughs> have you made the uh, pilgrimage, and- pilgrimage to Forks yet? <laughs> oh, you're funny. Uh, I, I, you know what? I have to tell you, one of the greatest disappointments of the entire Twilight series was the fact that they used forks, abused forks, and never filmed in forks. True enough. How dare they do that? <laughs> I mean, right? I, it's like, come on, people. Couldn't you just go and do it in forks? Couldn't you just actually film the Twilight series in forks? Well, people heard about forks in a way they never probably would have heard about it before. But it's fascinating. I'm one of these folks that grew up all about this, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this with Margot today. Vampires Are Us is the book, Understanding Our Love Affair with the Immortal Dark Side. I can't wait to have her help me understand my love affair with this. Whether you all were introduced to the idea of vampires at a very young age, and if, you are, if you're my age, then I'm going to share a little bit about what that looks like. But how about those of us that grew up with the amazing Anne Rice? And what is it we know about our current pop culture? 
everything from television shows to movies to short films to novels. You know, if, if you're writing a, a novel that is anything to do with anything, you are going to have somebody in that novel that has sharp teeth. I will guarantee that that's the only way you're going to get published these days. Margot, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. <laughs> okay, so let me do my little true confession, and then we're going to talk about this. Uh, I grew up in a generation where, you know, we were, we, 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 television and what was being portrayed on television, other than, you know, the variety shows that were out there, were, were movies that had to do a lot of sci-fi movies. A lot of them are being redone. War of the World, uh, certainly a lot of those movies. But clearly, the whole Frankenstein, vampire, werewolf thing got brought to the big screen uh, and the little screen in a generation that you would have never predicted it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. today we can predict it. But if you're going to go back to Lon Chaney Jr. and Bella Lugosi and my listeners are like, what? Are they, who is she talking about? Or but Dark Shadows. Back, Think about that. Oh, dark Shadows. Oh, dark shadows. Of... Right. Right. So tell me about this. Do you find it odd that here's television and one of the first high sci-fi genres, right, or let's just call it, you know, the, the dark side genres, comes onto the screen and the television and it's all about vampires and werewolves. I mean, didn't even Abbott and Costello play in one of those movies? I don't, actually, I don't remember is the truth. Because most of my, um, my sort of immersion, my kind of obsessive immersion into vampire lore happened first through books. And, and later, I went and watched all the television shows that I had <laughs> never watched. I had never watched Buffy, not a single episode. And now oh, I've no. watched every single episode of Buffy, every single episode of Angel, every single episode of, oh, do you remember um, Moonlight, the one season yes, of CBS? Yes, I love Moonlight. Oh, I, I'm in love with Moonlight, and absolutely I'm in, in love, love with, with Moonlight. Moonlight. And now, now what's his face is on uh, Hawaii Five O, right? The actor that right. was on Moonlight. I was right. so and, disappointed when that went and off he, the and air. When that stopped, it was so depressing because it was such a moral, a moral vampire detective. I mean, the whole show was one of the most moral TV shows I've ever seen in my life. But my whole yeah. obsession, and it, let me ask you a weird question. You said, you know, you want true confessions. The true yes. confessions I would ask both of you, have you ever wanted, well, have you ever sort of fantasized that you were a vampire? Oh, you got to be kidding me. You of know, course, uh, right? Uh, All the time, course. right? Come on. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and which version of that did you fantasize you were? Well, uh, this is what's kind of interesting about it. Did you actually, did I actually see myself when, when I was growing up with this uh, as something evil? Isn't that really the tricky part of this? I think that, you know, it's interesting. I was reading a, a description of Gordon Melton, who wrote this huge encyclopedia of vampires. It's like 800 pages. And he has a wonderful section where he talked. He ta I sort of interviewed him, and he, he talked about how when he was a child, and he grew up in a very fundamentalist evangelical household, but he immediately understood the difference between evil and dark, he said. And all uh -huh. his life he remembered 
that he would close his eyes and have this fantasy that he was a vampire. And the other, the biographer of Anne Rice, who has written wonderful, wonderful books, um, basically has a wonderful section where she talks about how when she was a kid, she would cross her arms and pretend when she was going to sleep that she was going to wake up as a vampire. And she would even tell people when she was like nine or ten that she was really 403 years old. (laughs) And so... At one point when I was doing some research about this, I actually came across this wonderful book by Martin Ricardo called Liquid Dreams of Vampires. And in it, he analyzes the fantasies of hundreds and hundreds of men and women who were interested in vampires. And the conclusion he comes to, and it's wonderful, is that they didn't want to have sex with them. They wanted to be them, that over and over and over they wanted, sometimes it was a fear of death, sometimes it was wanting immortality, sometimes it was wanting the strength and the agility and, and basically the outsider status. It was all kinds of reasons, but that if you analyze the fantasies of men and women all over the place, it's to be them, not to meet them, not to love them, but to be them. Well, and this is really kind of the conversation, isn't it? Um, you know, first of all, you and I are going to talk about a lot. You know, Eric, jump in here if you want. But I'm fascinated with you. I'm fascinated with you, Margot. And, and, and here's why. I, I, I made a little joke about it earlier, but I really wasn't joking. I mean, if somebody walked up to me and said to me, you know, we want you to write a book about vampires. And in order for you to write that book, you know, what we, what we need to do is you need to go out there and you need to do some research, you need to read these books, you need to watch the television shows. Um, Honestly, I would lock myself in a room and I wouldn't have to come out or eat. Um, And I wanted to ask you, tell tell our listeners a bit about how this started for you. Well, it all happened by complete serendipity because, to be honest, I had never been particularly interested in vampires. So I had been a big science fiction reader, a big speculative fiction reader, but I had never, I'd read maybe Interview with a Vampire, I'd read The Vampire Lestat, I'd read The Hunger, because Whitley Strieber was a friend, I'd seen that wonderful movie that was based on it, that incredible, sultry, unbelievable movie with Susan Sarandon and David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve, but... Except for that, I had not at all been interested. And I was, you know, I was going to a conference and I needed a trashy novel on the plane and I read the first Twilight novel and, and you know, it wasn't that well written, but I kind of got gripped by it. And then on the way home, I read the second one and it probably would never have gone that much further. But what happened to me was eight days after I got home, my husband, who I was with for 35 years, suddenly got diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer, and he only lived nine months. And he was the healthiest Uh man on the planet. He was a runner. He never smoked. He never took any drugs in the 60s. I mean, he was like he lived your perfect life, unlike me, but he lived your perfect life. And, um, And suddenly he got this kind of stomach cancer that, you know, usually people get in Japan from eating spicy foods or whatever, and he suddenly, that was it. And I sat by his bedside and suddenly, obsessively, obsessively started reading vampire novels to the extent that I've now read 270. And I just, at first, it was all about immortality and mortality. It was all about an exploration of death. I realized that coming from a kind of 
somewhat more Earth-centered place than he was. He was more of a scientist type, but we had very different attitudes about death. And I started, you know, thinking about these issues. And somewhere along the line, I mean, I started realizing that a lot of the best vampire novels and even the other ones were also exploring issues about death and immortality. For example, uh, even think about Twilight and how Rosalie in Twilight um, immediately says, you know, that she doesn't want immortality, that she wants right. to be part of the life cycle, that she, you know, she wants a baby. She wants, And I suddenly realized that in a weird way, Twilight was exploring the same issues that, let's say, all kinds of teenagers explored in Tuck Everlasting, you know? And so I started out with this kind of obsession, but what happened to me was somewhere along the lines, maybe because I'm a journalist and maybe because I'm interested in philosophy and politics and everything else, you know, like all good obsessions, it kind of broadened out. And at some point, I suddenly said to myself, well, this is all interesting, all about immortality and mortality, but it doesn't explain why Hollywood spent seven billion dollars over the last two years on vampire films and and tv shows something else is going on there and all my friends said oh it's sex it's sex it's just teens and sex that's all it's about that's all it's about and of course most of my being that i work for npr and i basically have this whole other life everybody else was saying how can you be reading all these vampire novels when they were reading all you know the stuff that got reviewed in the new york times right and i would be obsessing on these novels so at some point i started thinking, well, maybe it's really about power. You know how everybody said that rape was all about sex, and then we realized it really was underneath there was power and abuse of power? I started thinking about vampire novels and the issues of power. And wow. So, you know, and, and that was my first exploration, and I came across well, this Well, let's woman. talk about that when we come back from break, because okay. there is a relationship. And I have to tell you, uh, this book is fabulous, Vampires Are Us. It's not, it, it, it's, even though when you go to Amazon and you click on uh, vampires, Margot's book comes right up to the top. What I want to say to you, it's much more than that. When we come back, we're going to talk about what Margot Margo has discovered, Margot Adler joining me, what she's discovered about power, vampires, and spirituality. We're going to take a short break here. Margot Adler, my very special guest, Vampires Are Us, Understanding Our Love Affair with the Immortal dark side. Margo and I have something very interesting in common about this. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, do you like free stuff? The Dr. Pat Show has an amazing giveaway program doing weekly giveaways on Facebook and Twitter. Go to Facebook.com slash The Dr. Pat Show and click the like button. Then go to Twitter.com slash The Dr. Pat Show and click the follow button. Then you can play along and enter to win some amazing prizes. Again, that's Facebook.com slash The Dr. Pat Show and Twitter.com slash The Dr. Pat Show. Laura Longley is on a mission to remove stuckness from your life for good and replace it with happiness. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, and Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com for The Laura Longley Show, where authentic change takes flight. Say yes to that inspired you and goodbye to your stuckness as Laura and her guests deliver powerful ways to work through common problems in this fun and unique hit show. 
Tune in each Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 Eastern Time on Transformation Talk Radio to Limelight Radio with Katina Macris. This is an inspirational, cutting-edge radio show educating worldwide listeners on a diversity of Lyme disease-related topics. Each week, Katina will interview some of the world's leaders in health, wellness, spirituality, and human potential. For more information, visit LimeLightRadio.com. Did anyone teach you to be a parent? What if there were tools that could make your job a whole lot easier? Glenna Rice invites you to be the questionable parent you truly be in a dynamic teleseries designed to empower parents to know that they know and give you the awareness required to create ease and joy between you and your children. Check out GlennaRice.com to learn more and to book a private session. Or dial 415-235-2807. Are you tired of being tired? Hi, I'm Mary Jane Mack. Did you know the adrenal glands, the workhorse of the body? They are the means by which you position yourself in life for whatever comes your way. Tiny but mighty, producing hormones the body uses to promote energy and vitality. These adrenals determine how you respond to stress, and when depleted, the body loses its ability to function powerfully when we need it most. The much-needed adrenaline or epinephrine is not available for emergency situations. Cortisone and cortisol, the longer-acting anti-stress adrenal hormones, can also become depleted due to the pace of our everyday lives. We overwork and undernutrition our most powerful ally that helps us to live the lives we desire. We are able to determine the optimum function of the adrenals and put your system back in balance. Contact us today to feel powerfully energized at 888-777-4232 or visit us at maryjanemack.com. Hey everybody, welcome back. Welcome back to the Dr. Pat Show. Margo Adler is a longtime NPR news correspondent and uh, is a regular on many, many other shows. But imagine this. This is what I love about what I do. Uh, you know, I didn't think in a million years that growing up in the Bronx, in New Jersey, that I would get to have a conversation uh, with someone who's been an, an fabulously involved with radio for as long as you have, Margo, and be able to talk about things that we've discovered in our lives. You know, the, the landscape of radio has changed. You know, this is our 10th year anniversary. Oh, with tell me about Hatchet. it. Tell I know. me about it. Oh, my God. Right. I mean, uh, <laughs> when I started out in 1968, oh, so different. So do you think, I think it's taken a turn for the better. I mean, I'm what you call an independent radio host. And this, actually, I dialed the wrong phone number. That's how I got on radio. I didn't think in a million years that 10 years later we'd be on multiple stations as a, quote, independent radio person. And doing what I love, what was it about radio for you that enabled you to craft and open up uh, to become this author? I'll tell you, you know, there's a fabulous quote from Tony Schwartz, the ad man, who basically Mm -hmm. created the Daisy commercial during the Johnson administration, (laughs) 321, the mushroom cloud. And he once said this, the thing about radio is people were born without earlids. And if you think about that sentence really deeply, 
it sort of means that radio is the medium of the imagination. It's not boxed in like television. It's not on a little screen. You close your eyes in the same way that you do with books. Now, for me, you said that you think things have gotten better. I think things are beginning to return to a good place. But when I started out, I was at Pacifica, and I was able to do absolutely anything. I had a show called Hour of the Wolf at 5 a.m. in the morning, and I was able to talk totally personally and take phone calls. I could go on the air and just say, you know, I'm 29 years old at that time. You know, I'm 29 years old, and uh, I don't know if I want to have a kid, and I'm an only child, and I'm afraid I'd break it, and I'm also afraid I might become a Stepford wife and become a conformist, whereas it's really easy to be a rebel. And then I just open the phone lines, and then people would call with their own stories, and it would go on. And then I'd get 10-page single-space letters, and I'd read those on the air, and it would go on for another week. That was the kind of thing. And so what I'm doing now is much more, you know, straight-laced, formatted news, et cetera. But what is beginning to happen in podcasts and in independent radio is a return, I think, to the old free-form radio that was really created in the late 60s, early 70s. And we're beginning to see that again. And it's so exciting. It is exciting. And, you know, part of this is I love what you just said. Because, you know, one of the things that folks say to us is that, oh, my gosh, we can't even believe you're doing this. And by the way, Pat, you're like not even like a radio host. I mean, I'm not. I started this. I did dial a wrong phone number. And I actually didn't name the show the Dr. Pat Show. The listeners did. Uh, And it was kind of jokingly one day. All I know is that this is a venue. And when I started 10 years ago, women had moved away from talk radio. And, you know, it is, it is so amazing to watch what you just said unfold. That's right. Um, that's right. And, and, and you and I get women, to talk about vampires. And when I started, there were no, hardly any women doing live no. radio. Because no. when I walked in to the news organization in 1968, <laughs> I was told women do not do news. Their voices right. are too high. And uh, which is why I can never look at Mad Men. It's too close to reality. Anyway, <laughs> back to That's vampires. Right. Back well, to vampires. you're absolutely right. And I thought it was important to acknowledge you and acknowledge, you know, who you are to our listeners, because mm-hmm. it, very rarely do I get to speak with other uh, folks in radio, especially people uh, such as yourself, who really did break through so many barriers to continue to bring messages of empowerment uh, to the forefront. And I wanted to acknowledge you for that. Thank uh, you. It doesn't get said that often. And Thank you I so wanted much. to acknowledge that. Um, and you know what? I mean, it's a level of immortality all yep, the time. Absolutely. <laughs> it is. It is. So power, right. spirituality, and vampires. You know, it's kind of funny even saying that. But there is a connection, and I wanted to ask you about what you've discovered since the early days of vampires and where we are today and how vampires are being portrayed, especially power, spirituality, uh, and, and other things. What's the change you, you've discovered? Well, I came across this line which really reverberated for me in my research. It was written by Nina Auerbach in a book called Our Vampires Ourselves about 15 years ago or so. And she said, every age embraces the vampire it needs. 
And when I started thinking about that and I started talking to historians and other people, I suddenly realized, yeah, you know, in 1897, Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. England had the largest ports in the world. There was a fear of disease coming in. There was a fear of immigration. There was a fear of all this stuff. Of, and so here we have this monster bringing dirt from a foreign land. It was the perfect, perfect sort of vessel for those fears and concerns. 1816, first English vampire story, first story in the English language written by Polidori in the same chalet, the same weekend that Mary Shelley started Frankenstein. And the fear, of course, in that time and the concern was perhaps science playing God. In the 80s, there were a lot of, no- there were a lot of novels and short stories where vampirism was a disease as we dealt with sort of the AIDS crisis. So I was thinking, well, what, what's happening now? Why, who are the vampires we need? Who are, what are they representing for us? And one day, I just, it was just one of those weird moments. I put all the most popular vampires on television, and some of the, so I put, you know, Angel and Spike from Buffy, and the Cullens in Twilight, and I put Bill and Eric from True Blood, and I put, you know, Mick St. John from Moonlight, and I put, you know, oh, you know, I put all these other ones. Oh, of course, Stefan and Damon of the Vampire Diaries. And I just put them all in a line. And I said, and there was a whole bunch more, too. And I sort of said, well, what do they have in common? And in what way are they not like Dracula or the ones that went before? And this light bulb went off in my head, and the light bulb was, oh, they're all conflicted. They're all desperately struggling, often failing, but they're often desperately struggling to be moral despite being predators. And that's exactly who we are. It's just that our own struggles are really, you know, our blood is oil. We're sort of, you know, sucking the lifeblood out of the planet. And I called Whitley Strieber at this moment saying, this must be, this is totally crazy on my part. It's totally crazy to have this environmental view about it. And I called up Whitley and I said, Whitley, am I totally crazy? And he said, no, our prey is the planet. (laughs) It was kind of like, oh my God, that's incredible. So that was my sort of the first big insight. But the other insight was, the two other insights were, first of all, um, I went out to California to visit this woman named Amy Smith, who teaches, she's a Quaker, she teaches literature of war, but she also teaches vampires in films and fiction. And she said to me, you know, Every good vampire novel is about this question of power. It's about now that we're on the top of the food chain, do we treat humans as cattle? Or because we were once human, do we still have to give them respect? And she said, you know, that's not such a different question as the question we handle every day when we basically ask ourselves, how do I treat someone who has less money than me? who has less status than me, is might, does might make right. We deal with those issues every day, and every good vampire novel talks about this issue. And that was really a sort of revelation to me. And then I started looking at Buffy and all the power issues in Buffy and how Buffy posits this incredible sort of non-patriarchal feminist form of power, which is really, really interesting. And so, you know, those were some of the basic kind of insights that I had. And then I wrote a letter to Anne Rice, and I said, Dear Anne, I'd never met her before in my life, although I haven't, I don't know how I have this autographed copy of the Vampire Lestat, so something must have happened way back. But maybe when I did my radio show, maybe she came on. I don't know. Anyway, 
um, I basically wrote her a letter and I said, um, you know, why do vampires have such traction in our culture? What's going on? And she wrote me back this email. At first she sort of said, oh, I don't really know. I don't have anything inside the outsider and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then suddenly she came out with a sentence which has blown me away ever since I've heard it. She said, but for teens, their love of vampires is because they are desperately seeking a noble path through the hideous passage that Western culture has set up for them. And I thought about this sentence, and I thought about the Cullens going through high school over and over and over, and how teens have to face corporate culture, job culture, bullying, all the other things that they have to face in high school. And think of the Cullens having to do it five, six times over and over and over. They are desperately seeking the noble path through the hideous passage Western culture has set up for them. And I suddenly thought, think of going to your senior prom five times. I thought, that's really a horror story. (laughs) (laughs) I love, I love that, uh, what you said about that. You know, one of the things that's really fascinating to really look at in conjunction with that is what's happened to us here. And, you know, I got to be part of it, and then I got to study it, uh, both at Columbia and then I went off to, to study it in California. And that is what people call the violation of the psychological contract. Many people call it the repeal. Basically, the bottom line is we live in a society of broken promises. Mm. And, and so, you know, what you're saying makes sense to me because, you know, I work with teens. And I remember one of them saying to me, what can we actually believe? Can I believe that I'm going to grow up and be able to support myself? Can I believe that our governments are going to take care of the planet? It's really interesting to hear young people talk like that. I never thought in my lifetime that I would hear that. Is that along the lines uh, of what you're referring to? Absolutely. And also it's partly... It's not only the question of can I grow up and can I believe, but, you know, and, and what is the society going to be for me and how can I yeah. basically make my way? And yet, on the other hand, when you meet college students today, I was just visiting the old student co-op I lived in in 65, and they're so bright and they're so engaged and they're so filled with life. I just thought, oh, boy, I'd never get into the university I went to now. <laughs> But I think you're right. I think there is this sense. I think there is this sense that they are, uh, first of all, they have a clearer eyed. Okay, here's what I would say. They have a clearer eyed perception of abuse of power than anybody else because they see it and they haven't, and they're under its thumb. So they are under the thumb of parents, they are under the thumb of school, they are under the thumb of all of these things, and so they see it with clearer eyes than their parents who have already made all these compromises, and the society around them which has really made all these compromises. And so to them, somehow or another, I think vampires represent this kind of strong outsider way of looking at the world in a different way and having the power to maybe confront it in a different way. You know, part of the other thing is you make a comment in in the book as well, which I loved. I had never thought about this, but you talk about in the chapter of the book on spirituality. And for those of you that are just tuning in, Margot Adler joining me here today. The book is Vampires Are Us, 
understanding our love of, uh, love affair with the immortal dark side. And we do have that. One of the things you did talk about, which, which I was really struck by, I actually had to go back and read it, like in two or three paragraphs. I had to read it a couple times. Talked about the element of the Twilight series by Stephanie Myers that had to do with family. Oh, yeah. And, yes. Oh, yeah. And I want oh, you to yeah. talk to that for a minute. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, everybody disses Twilight. You know, they all say, yeah. oh, I hate these sparkly vampires. I just that and the other. Oh. Stephanie Meyer is just a Mormon who basically, you know, is anti-feminist, and it's all <laughs> about abstinence and blah, 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 blah. So I started looking at it and thinking about it in a very different way, and I partly started thinking about it because I'm, the, I'm an only child of divorce, and that's exactly what Bella is. She's an only child of divorce, and she's in a kind of not such a great family situation. You know, her her father's a cop. He's kind of nice, but he's kind of boring. Her mother's out in Florida, married a minor league baseball player. There's nothing really going on there. And so I suddenly saw her choices as not just, oh, will I choose Edward, or will I, you know, will I go werewolf, or will I go, you know, (laughs) which one? I suddenly saw both of her options as these large, much more interesting families than the one that she came from. So one was working class, filled with Native American lore, all kinds of marriage, all kinds of magic, but also all this tribal wisdom and so forth, but this large extended family. And the other family was basically a, you know, very super educated Mozart coming out of the speakers, degrees on the wall. The Cullen family is super educated, but again, a large extended family of choice in this case, not of of tradition and lore, but of choice. And I realized that in some way, the Mormon um, love of big families was perhaps more (laughs) to the point than all the the criticisms that had been laid out about, about, you know, sexism and feminism and this, that, and the other. And so that was my first take on it. And then I came across this wonderful book by Victoria Nelson called um, Gothica. And in it, she has a spiritual view of Twilight. And I really, it just blew me away, because I hadn't at the beginning, when I was doing this project, even though I've been involved in alternate spirituality for since 1971 and have written about it and so forth, I never really thought about vampires in any kind of spiritual way, possibly because of all the evil connotations and stuff. And what she says essentially is that Bella sort of dies and is reborn and becomes a goddess. And yes. if you really think about it, she becomes more powerful than Edward. She becomes, uh, and, 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 and the, the, the chapter that she even writes about Edward, is she sort of has him looking like a kind of Tibetan, Tibetan kind of god, all sparkly and everything, and kind of talks about a kind of a god reborn. And I suddenly started seeing Bella in a very, very different light than I had previously. Well, I, I love that you wrote about this in the book, and honestly, there are so many things in the book that folks could find out uh, about through reading it themselves. But there are a couple questions. Well, first of all, your book's available everywhere, so I want folks to kind of know that. They can go to Amazon and other places. Um, how can they find out more about you? Is there a website folks can go to? Well, there is a website, but it doesn't have that much. 
But if you Google okay. me, there's lots of stuff. So there's MargoAdler.com, <laughs> which is, you know, um, I've written, okay, I have a 1960s memoir called Heretic's <laughs> Heart, A Journey Through Spirit and Revolution, because I was everywhere uh, in the 60s and early 70s. I was part of the free speech movement. I went to Mississippi and did voter registration in Mississippi. I uh, was in Chicago in 68. I was all over the map. So there is this 60s memoir that I've written. And of course, I've also written the, the book that I'm probably most famous for is a book called Drawing Down the Moon, which is goddess worshippers and uh, druids and goddess worshippers and other pagans in America today. And it is sort of was the first. It's had several editions. Its last edition was in 2006. But it basically it was the first book to really look at earth religions of all different kinds, reconstructed Celtic religions, uh, you know, uh, pagan religions, um, the, the, the women's kind of spirituality movement that was so prevalent in the late 70s and 80s. Um, and, and so I've, you know, sort of talked about that, and those books are all available and still in print. And, um, and so there's, there's all of that, and I've, there have been many, many interviews and stuff like that, plus I have my whole radio world. So, yes. um, you know, so there's, there's many me's. <laughs> well, I love that there are, there are many, many me's. And, you know, part of this is what I love about what you do, Marvin, and what you've done, and, and being out there so much in the world and being on the forefront of so many things we can now look back at and say these were really transformative moments. I was at this, and that was a transformative transformative moment. I was at that. And, you know, this is a conversation today uh, that I'm so thrilled that you wrote this book because I can't tell you how many parents right now are trying to figure out what the heck is wrong with my kids and the obsession about vampires and Halloween, they dressing up with the teeth and then the wolves. And, and I wanted to talk with you uh, about a couple of other things. One is, what was your greatest aha? Meaning, what was it along this journey in writing this uh, that, A, uh, that you discovered that was so, let's just say, perhaps different than what you thought? Well, you know, I consider once I had this sort of environmental moment, I thought I just <laughs> always assumed that it kind of started with Anne Rice, and yeah. um, and then I started realizing that Barnabas and Dark Shadows, which was nineteen sixty seven sixty eight, um, that had gone all the way back to them. That he was really one of the first conflicted, morally struggling vampires, and I had my, one of my biggest ahas was that I realized that Barnabas happened right at the same moment that we first saw the Earth from space. And that at that moment, we shifted. We completely shifted. At first, you know, when the astronauts first looked down and saw the Earth from space, they could blot it out with their thumbs. And they suddenly realized how fragile, how beautiful, how, how vulnerable in some way that beautiful blue-white ball was, you know. And until, remember, until 68, no one had seen a picture of this. This did yeah. not exist. And by, by Apollo 17 in 1970, um, suddenly everybody 
had not only seen, in 1972, I guess it was, everybody uh, had seen this blue marble vision of the Earth, which became the most reproduced photograph in the world. And I think when we first saw that photograph, we first saw, I mean, my big aha was at first I thought, oh, but I always knew that that was, oh, we're all brothers, there are no boundaries, it's all wonderful. And then I realized that it wasn't a completely positive vision. It was a darker vision. And that that vision was, oh, we're responsible. Oh, this is our planet. Oh, it's vulnerable, and we need to take care of it. And I think that that realization, which led to the first Earth Day, which led to so much else, I think in some way that that became connected to our changing in viewing the way we even view vampires. So that was one of the big ahas, I would say. I wanted to ask you about something that, that I've observed, and, and it had to be of this culture, right? I think when you and I were growing up, I was born in the Bronx. When we were growing up, when I had this fascination, I never thought in a million years, Margo, that that we would all be not just involved with the idea of, of being a vampire and immortality, but something that has become so relevant. And I can't help but go back to, the, to, to one of the films you mentioned, The Hunger, mm-hmm. uh, right? I can't help but go back to that. Because in the book, you talk a bit about uh, our lesbian culture. But, but let's just take it one step further. You know, there have been same-sex attraction in many of these books of the past several decades, right? And even maybe even going farther back. But I remember one scene, I will never forget it, when they did the movie, right, the Anne Rice movie, and again, I'm going to probably talk about Anne Rice way too much, but there's that one scene between Antonio Banderas and Brad Pitt in, in Lestat the Vampire, right? That movie. Or, or was this Interview with the Vampire, I think? or was Interview it? with the Vampire, thank you. Right. Uh, there's the one scene in that movie where those two actors came so very close. And there was clearly, uh, in for the first time I think that I've seen on, uh, uh, on screen, except for The Hunger, where openly we're talking about same-sex attraction on screen in the context of vampires. And I think that's been revolutionary for me. And I wanted to ask you about that. You know, is that a sign of the times? Was that a sign of the times? Or was that simply Anne Rice? (laughs) Um, I don't know if it was a sign of the times, but what I think is really true is that um, there is a lot of... I would make a separation between sensuality and what we often think of as sexuality, which we tend to just mean intercourse, you know? All of these books were incredibly sensual, incredibly erotic and sensual, and they were sometimes sensual with same sex, and sometimes they were sensual with other sex, but, and not only Anne Rice, but Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, but if you look at Anne Rice, and you look at Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, there's no intercourse in those books. Right. There's biting, there's erotic feelings, there's sensuality, there's ecstasy, but there's no intercourse. And what I notice in the romance books today is that a lot of them are kind of sort of stupid pro-formulaic sex scenes, you know. He killed me, he's this, he's that, you know. And I think, wow, it's so different from the kind of deep, 
erotic and sensual feelings that some of these greater books really had. And I think that's really translating to today's world as well uh, and moving in, in certain interesting directions because, you know, part of this is looking at power, spirituality, sensuality, and back to the title of your book, Vampires Are Us, Understanding Our Love Affair with the Immortal Dark Side. In writing this and taking this journey, Margot, what did you discover about yourself, and what kind of understanding did you come to about your love affair with the immortal dark side? Well, I first came to the understanding <laughs> that I can't write fiction. I tried to... <laughs> I I had so many vampire fantasies, and I have to tell you that most of them were sort of Twilight fan fiction with Alice as the central character, and um, (laughs) I have to admit this. And so I tried writing some of them down, and they were so bad. So one of the things that I learned is that my uh, my love affair with the dark side is not going to translate itself into vampire fiction. I'm just really bad at it. So that was one thing that I realized. And I realized that I had I started fantasizing hugely. And that was interesting that particularly when my husband was dying and I needed an escape, that vampire fantasies uh, and being a vampire and kind of, in, you know, became a huge, huge escape for me. And it was very needed. And I haven't been doing it recently, but it was very needed during the period when I was going through, I guess, the most emotion and the most trauma about about my husband's death. Uh, I guess the other... Um, what I guess the thing that I really learned about, I learned something about obsession because mm-hmm. everybody said to me, well, I have to tell you the fun, the fun line, of course, which was that everybody said to me, how could you spend all this time reading 300, you know, 270? First of all, people would say, there are 270 vampire novels. And I'd say, well, you know, there's this book over here that I can lead you to that has a bibliography of 5,000, and it was written in 09, which means there are probably at least 6,000 by now. And so, uh, and then they would say, how could you spend your time with such trash? And, of course, I have this line at the end of my essay, which basically I got from, from this book, Gothica, but it's so beautiful, which says, you know, when, when, oh my, when the divine has been exiled from most elite art and culture for the last hundred years, you have to look for it sometimes in the trash. And I've begun to realize that genre fiction of all kinds, whether it be science fiction or detective fiction or romance and stuff like that, even though some of it's horrible, some of it has insights that the straight, you know, elite kind of fiction never has. So that's one big insight I had. And I guess the last insight I had was that I started out with this obsession on vampires, but it brought me so many places. It brought me into looking at spirituality. It brought me into looking at power. It brought me into looking at the environment. It brought me to look at teens and their identity crises. Every kind of place that's really interesting went from a very simple, simple obsession about mortality and my husband's death, and it suddenly broadened out till it embraced the world. Oh, wow. What an enormous gift. I mean, you know, I love that you share that. That was really an important question for me because, you know, I've gotten to do this show in a world that I've never been able to do it. Send 7,000 interviews, 7,000 books I've read at least, and 
to get your book and to read it in the way that you've written it is such a great way to help us understand the human essence of things. Um, and I really want to, I really want to thank you for that. I have one interesting question, which I thought about and I wrote down and I almost forgot to ask you, is there going to, first of all, how did you discipline yourself? Cause I don't think I could have done this to only direct this book at vampires and not werewolves given what I know about your radio show. And then is there going to be a werewolf R us book? No, I'm not particularly interested in werewolves. Zombies are a little more interesting, I think, from yes, politically. They are. They're politically very interesting. And yes, uh, I don't think I'm going to go there necessarily. But I was just fascinated. I didn't have to discipline myself because okay. I was just so fascinated by vampires that I just one book led to the other. I mean, the more interesting question is how did I choose the 270 books? I have no idea. They just, someone would recommend <laughs> one and I'd read one and then I'd see that there was a sequel and I'd read that. And and then someone else would say, have you read that? So I don't know if these are the best, although I do have my favorites at the end. I do put my, like, dozen favorites at the end. But but, um, but I, I think it was just, it just kind of, it, it moved, you know? It flowed. It was much easier than any of the other two books I've written. Well, I think that part of this, and, you know, this is what I was really struck by as I read this book, there's a real intuitive flow to it. Uh, I'm not a writer, um, uh, but I will tell you, in reading it, there was a really natural, intuitive flow to it. You know, there wasn't any point in time where I thought, oh, spirituality here, why is that chapter here? It was like, I need to keep reading this. I have to keep reading this. I have to keep, and I, and, you know, and I flip through it and I say, uh-oh, that's over there. But I wanted to read it in a certain way. Because I found that the, the way that you have helped us understand this in terms of who we are, our society, and perhaps what our, our fascination is with the dark side also reveals so many, many things. You know, um, I started this out as, yeah. I, I started this out as a sermon. I mean, one of the uh-huh. first things I did is I did a 17-minute version that I actually have given in six churches, believe it or not. And um, it's sort of, you know, my vampire sermon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went from that to an essay, which I sort of had as an Amazon single, and then I went to a book. But it kind of just, it, it was kind of serendipitous. It just sort of flowed. You're right. Thank you so much for saying all that. Well, it is, and it, and it, and and I thought to myself, oh, she's not going to mention the moonlight thing, or she's not. You know, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, she didn't leave anything out. Um, I, I I know we have a few minutes left, and I wanted to ask you, you know, when you speak and you you talk to people about what this book revealed to you and what you hope it does reveal uh, to, to folks that read it. Um, I would like to know what that is. You know, what would you what would you hope that all of us get out of this, uh, in a sense? Because I think everyone's going to be different. You know, I think what I want most, and I was in Scotland and Amsterdam, and I was talking to teens. I have relatives in Amsterdam, and I have, and they were all obsessed with vampires, and they were saying, "Oh, Damon is mine," and they were <laughs> obsessed with the Vampire Diaries completely. And I think what I want is I want people who are particularly teens, 
particularly young people who are interested in vampires, to be drawn into a deeper inquiry. In other words, not only, well, isn't he cute, but what does this say about us? What does it say about our thoughts about life and death and and uh, power and, and spirituality? I want people to have a deeper exploration. And if this book in any way, you know, helps toward that, then I will feel that I've, you know, I've really done something successful and it'll be really wonderful. Well, uh, I know you know this, and probably when you were writing the book, right, um, uh, the originals had not been the offshoot of uh, the Vampire Diaries at the time. I still here, have not, here, I have not, I have several of them taped, and I have not watched it yet. Well, I, I would love to I have you back to talk that? about that. <laughs> uh, Do you like it? It is now my all-time new favorite show, but I have to tell you, after my conversation with you today, I have a better understanding. It's all about family. It's about the trials, the tribulations, you know, the betrayal. I mean, imagine a brother that stabs you in a heart century over century to put you to sleep for a future future moment. Um, But the obsession we have with the show and the ratings of the show and all of us waiting to see the vulnerable side of Klaus. Oh, oh. Right? And I'm not going to yes. share too much if you haven't seen it. Don't um, share too much. But, right. you know, it's Klaus I certainly know from the other, which I've never missed an episode of. So, Well, and the other fascination with this, and maybe this is something that is, a fa- is now our new obsession with witches and witchcraft. Oh, um, yeah, but I think they're not doing it right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're doing it badly. I looked at one of the Coven, and I looked at one of the other one, oh. and I went, oh, no. No, <laughs> don't do it like that. Please. Please well, don't make them that way. Oh, you know, but we turned in, we turn on the Coven not to see the Coven, but to see Jessica Lang and Angela yeah. Bassett back now, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was great. Uh, I loved every minute of it. I wanted to ask you one last question. What is your personal message? What would you like to leave all of us with? And again, thank you for everything you've done in the world of radio, in the world of journalism, and all of of what you've done, you know, to remind us that we do have a conscience. Live every day. My mother's words were alive. I mean, when I wrote on a bench when my mother died, alive, alive, she was so alive. And I think that if we can try to be as present and fun-loving and powerful and embodied and, you know, that there's, I mean, even if dark, horrible things are happening, and I'm fighting cancer myself. So, I mean, but I I tell you, it's not stopping me for a moment. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think we all have to get out there and be as filled with pizzazz (laughs) as totally possible. That's what it is. Just be as filled with joy as you can. And, you know, I don't think I have enough time to really say this, but 
Um, I once was at the last leper colony. It no longer exists. Uh, and I remember hearing this guy had lost his fingers and everything like that, and he couldn't play the guitar anymore and this, that, and the other. And I said to him, you know, you're so joyous. And he says, oh, I just am. I have my chickens, and I have my newspaper, and I have my this that I write, and I just, I, I am just, you know, so in, jo- in love with life. And so that's what I would, you know, say to people, be in love with life. Uh, thank you, Margo. Thank you so much. Margo Adler, everyone, Vampires are Us, and much more. As she said, Google Margo Adler. Thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you. It was great. I want to thank all of you for tuning us in, turning us on. If you want to find out more about the Dr. Pat Show, go to the thedrpatshow.com. Uh, certainly Facebook and Twitter, uh, uh, com. more on TransformationTalkRadio.com, and please check out Vampires Are Us. Get to know Margo Adler uh, in a very special way that I just did. We'll see you next time on the show. Holistic Medical Center is where you find it all. A healthy space with doctors who care, see, and listen to the whole you. Hi, this is Dr. Darvish. If you have not found an answer to your chronic symptoms, you will find answers here at Holistic Medical Center. Our doctors find the root cause of your symptoms and guide your body towards healing naturally. We transform lives from within. Visit drdarvish.com or call 425-451-0404. Hey, Moon, you want to know something groovy? Yeah, Jess. What's that? Dr. Pat has been on the radio for 10 years. 10 years? Are you kidding me? That's awesome. I'll tell you what's awesome. She's bringing back the Pay It Forward campaign and Holistic Makeover to celebrate. If you want to know more or get involved, go to thedrpatshow.com or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedrpatshow to get updates about everything we're doing. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Steffen each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. Are you ready to move past limiting beliefs and unconscious obstacles that are holding you back from financial prosperity? Do you want to be free from debt and that feeling of being disempowered? Mary Jane Allen is a financial healer and joy creation specialist who uses her unique set of tools included in her financial healing process to help her clients move past those beliefs and fears. For more information and to contact Mary Jane, visit her website, manifestyourlifedream.com and begin your financial healing process today. What if there's nothing wrong with you? What if you're far greater than you've ever given yourself credit for? What if it's time to know the gift and the contribution you are to the world and to like yourself a lot more? Hi, my name is Dane here. 13 years ago, I started to truly ask questions. Actually, I started to be the question and everything changed for me. Asking questions opens doors to infinite possibilities. And it's not about finding the answer. It's about being the question, always. What I'm inviting you to step into is something that Einstein, Marie Curie, Newton, Da Vinci, Gandhi, Picasso, and Aristotle all knew to be true. What if no question is too big or too small? What if anything is possible for you? 
What if together we could create a kinder, gentler, happier world? Is now the time? Go to beingyouclass.com and sign up for a free video series, My Gift to You. beingyouclass.com What if you, truly being you, are the gift and change this world requires? beingyouclass.com Grateful patients have been saying it for 25 years. When in pain, see Dr. Thane. Dr. Thane of Wellness One of Bellevue has been named one of the nation's top chiropractors by the Consumers Research Council of America, and for good reason. He has helped his patients recover their energy and vitality after car accidents, sports injuries, herniated discs, fatigue due to stress, the list goes on. The website is bellevue.wellness1.net. When in pain, see Dr. Thane. That's bellevue.wellness1.net.